Amen. Our hope is not in a politician. Our hope is not in government. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, and that's a sure and certain thing. What a nice feeling to tamper down some of the anxiety, some of the fear, some of the frustration that many in our culture are feeling right now, to know that our hope is a living hope. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, you've been born into a living hope, Jesus Christ, who did rise again from the dead. I'm so grateful for our, our music team. Lauren Moody's out today, so Aaron just decided he'd hop on the piano. He can uh, do pretty much everything. Jude's in band this year in middle school, and his band director can play everything. That's really impressive to Jude. I don't know if you know, but Aaron used to be a band director, and Aaron, too, can play literally any instrument that you uh, put in front of him. Pretty talented guy. Thank God for, for him. Praise team, thank you very much. Our series in Acts is dwindling. It's drawing to a close. I'm going to preach one more sermon in Acts after this. Not ever, but for this year. And then uh, Evan Kuntz is going to preach on the 22nd. And I think, Christine, where's Christine? Are we going to have a marimba duet that day? I can't wait. Uh, Christine Comer has a master's in percussion. And she and, and Nate Burbank are going to do an organ marimba duet on a Thanksgiving song uh, before Thanksgiving uh, Day. It's gonna be a, a beautiful day of worship. So only two more weeks left in this series and for almost 11 months, we've been looking how a ragtag group of disciples and untrained um, fishermen, thank you Randy, <laughs> you're so good. Uh, I don't know why you think I need that. Uh, <laughs> Um, this ragtag group of uneducated fishermen and a murderous rabbi who was a Jewish zealot, how this group somehow became an unstoppable force for the gospel going throughout all creation, even to the ends of the earth. My hope and prayer is that even though Woodmont has been around for 80 years, uh, that we would see ourselves as a, almost like a church plant seeing ourselves as a new birth, that a fresh wind and a fresh fire of the Holy Spirit would fall fresh on us and fill us to accomplish our God-given mission to love the God, love the Lord our God with all that we are, to love our neighbors as ourselves and to make disciples of all nations. Let's focus on those things. Can a pandemic stop the church? No. We're gonna to continue to be the church no matter what because God filled us with his own spirit. This month we're seeing how the Apostle Paul, one of the, the greatest, the uh, first missionary of the church, ended up near the end of his ministry in the capital of the known world at that time, which was Rome itself. We're calling this journey to Rome. He had longed to go there. He had longed to share the gospel in this, you know, prosperous, uh, major cosmopolitan place uh, of Rome, but he had no idea how he was going to get there. Look at this map that shows kind of the, the crazy route. There were shipwrecks and snake bites. We're going to get into all that later, but uh, for now, we know that at the end of his third missionary journey, Paul had been taking up a collection, right, for the struggling mother church in Jerusalem that was poor and just trying to make it amidst persecution there in Jerusalem. And all his friends said, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. You're going to be killed if you go there. You know that the Jewish authorities there have been out to get you. They're making up lies about you. And if you set foot in that city, man, they're going to kill you. He says, the Holy Spirit has compelled me to go. I got to go. 
So he shows up in Jerusalem. Go to the next one, Will, and zoom in a little bit. And then he gets arrested, of course, in Jerusalem, as we know, and he's tried, but he appeals to his Roman citizenship. He's due for a court appearance at the capital of Judea, which was a little town northeast of there, northwest of there, sorry, call it, it's backwards for me, Caesarea. That was the Roman province on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, so they could get couriers back and forth from Rome to Judea in a, in a you know, efficient fashion. So Paul goes up to Caesarea, and he's tried. Last week we saw he was tried there in Caesarea in the court of a guy named Felix. Felix was the governor of the, the Roman province of Judea, and Felix just kept Paul languishing in prison, not really knowing what to do with him after the trial was inconclusive. And after two years of Paul sitting in jail, a new governor is appointed by the Roman officials, and his name is Festus. That was Acts chapter 24, okay? Then I'm going to just summarize 25 briefly, so just stick with us, and then we're going to jump into 26. In chapter 25, Festus hears from these Jewish authorities about this guy named Paul and how they, they still, after two years, want him crucified. They want Paul dead. And so they go to the new governor and say, you got to kill this guy. He's a troublemaker. He's been causing all kinds of trouble in Jerusalem and around the world, and he's a heretic, and he should be killed. And they basically replay the trial from the last chapter in front of Festus now instead of Felix. Paul's accused by the Sanhedrin again there in the court in Caesarea, but this time Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, I have the right to go to the emperor, Caesar himself, in the seat of power in Rome and appeal my case to him. And Festus says, okay, to Caesar you shall go. That's his exact words. But before he can send Paul on to Rome, a royal caravan rolls into Caesarea. King Agrippa and his sister Bernice show up there in Caesarea. Now let's talk about King Agrippa a little bit first before we go on. After the sermon last week, uh, Knox Rogers, they're at home quarantining. I'm sure they're watching today, but one of our, our very keen, astute fifth graders, uh, Knox, came up to me and said, good sermon today. Did not like that Felix guy. <laughs> I said, yeah, he's, he's a bad dude. King Agrippa apparently makes uh, Felix look like a decent guy. King Agrippa was even more of an unsavory character than Felix. Felix was indeed an inept and cruel ruler, but Agrippa was on a whole nother level. Agrippa's full name was Agrippa Herod II. Yeah, those Herods. Remember the Herodian dynasty was a great tool of our enemy Satan to persecute Christ and the church from the very beginning. This is a evil systemic evil family that the Herodian dynasty that, that ruled in this Jewish region for many, many, many years. Let's just remind you, Agrippa's great-grandfather was Herod the Great. Remember, he was the guy that heard a rumor about the Christ child being born in Bethlehem, so he said, kill all the Jewish male babies. We're going to wipe out the Messiah before we can even get to him. And then his, his grand-uncle was Herod Antipas, who killed John the Baptist. Remember when Salome was dancing and said, I want that guy's head. He said, okay, we'll do it. 
And then his father, Agrippa I, Agrippa Herod I, was the one who had James imprisoned and then executed in Jerusalem. And then he did the same thing to Peter. He had Peter imprisoned and had planned to execute him. But remember, the earthquake came and Peter had a miraculous escape. And remember how that guy died? King Agrippa I was the one that was eaten by worms for uh, receiving worship that was due to God. And he said, yes, praise me, give me the worship. And he was killed on the spot and eaten by worms. That was this guy's dad, <laughs> King Agrippa II. A long lineage of evil in this guy's family. But Agrippa II was really a puppet king. You know, the Romans were the ones who really were in charge, right? And they had kind of whittled his territory that he was in charge of down to just a few mostly Gentile regions, but they considered him an expert on Judaism. So they gave Agrippa II the authority over the temple treasury in Jerusalem, and they also allowed him the authority to appoint the high priest whenever he felt like it in Jerusalem. So he, he did have a lot of Jewish authority. He, he was, the, the Herods themselves were uh, considered Jews. I'm not sure how Jewish they actually were because they obviously did not know the one true God. So when King Agrippa shows up in Caesarea, Festus is pumped. He's like, great, we got a Jewish expert. This, this guy and his family have been dealing with Jews for a long time. Maybe he can help me out with this whole Paul situation. And Festus basically says to King Agrippa, man, glad you're here. Uh, this Paul guy's been kind of giving everybody fits. Felix left him here in prison. I don't know what to do with him. He wants to go to Rome and I'm gonna send him to Rome. But the, these Jewish leaders keep accusing him of these terrible things for which there is no evidence and their arguments can't hold water. And Paul's a Roman citizen, makes it tricky. How do we handle this? Look at how Festus frames the issue in Acts chapter 25, starting in verse 18. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. This is Festus talking to Agrippa, telling them what happened. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about some guy, a certain Jesus, who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss, how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go back to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. So he's asking that if he wants to go to Jerusalem. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him on to Caesar. So again, he's kind of stuck. Paul's just rotting in prison again and Festus doesn't know what to do. So Agrippa, he's like, oh, I've got plenty of experience with this. I'm an expert on Jewish matters. I know how to handle this. I want to hear Paul give a defense himself. So the next day, there's another trial for Paul in front of King Agrippa. Look at the next verse, verse 23. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Great pomp and circumstance surrounding this trial. The word for pomp here is the Greek word fantasia. It's like a, 
a fantasy novel. It's like the scene in uh, uh, The Hunger Games where you have these rulers with these great robes and this great pomp and circumstance. You know, Bernice and Agrippa are in their royal purple and they're up on their thrones and next to them is Festus in his Roman red regalia and there's rich people from all over the city who've come to see this and there's Roman legionnaires, very impressive in their full armor and their weapons at the ready. It's all meant to intimidate Paul, who's shuffled out in front of this great, fantastic scene with his manacles and his chains and his prison garb after he's been rotting in prison for years. But the humble apostle, even in his chains, towered in spirit, and in character over all the rich and royal and self-important people of that court because he was full of the Holy Spirit. He had the Lord God inside of him. He felt like he could take on anything, and he could. Paul had been looking for just this opportunity. He was pumped about finally, uh, you know, for the last two years, now he gets to make his case before a judge who actually knows something about Judaism, which Paul has a lot of experience with, and an impartial governor who's not impressed by the Sanhedrin's accusations. So starting in chapter 26, in verse 2, Paul begins to make his defense. And it's not really a defense. Paul's an evangelist. He's always looking to share the gospel. So instead of saying, I didn't do any of that stuff, and, and talk about himself, He instead points to Jesus Christ. It's a positive presentation of the gospel. Back when I preached on the five purposes of the church, I I used this text to talk about evangelism and how we should approach our conversations looking for an evangelistic appeal. But right when Paul starts to talk about Jesus and he, he gets to the climax of his presentation, he's rudely interrupted. Isaiah tried to tell the the interrupting cow joke this morning. He he didn't quite get it, so May and I were trying to help him understand how to to interrupt. It didn't come naturally, but Festus knows how to interrupt. Festus interrupted Paul right at the height of his argument. Look at verse 24. And as Paul was saying these things about the gospel in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Keep going. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're crazy, is what he says. You know, a lot of people throughout history have been accused of being crazy and then been proven to actually be quite sane. In the late 1800s, a prominent bishop here in in the States, in Indiana and Ohio, uh, he was in the Church of the United Brethren of Christ. His name was Milton Wright. He said it was impossible for humans to fly. Flight, he said, is reserved for the angels. On December 17th, 1903, some of you know where this is headed. His oldest son, Wilbur, took his seat in the first power-driven plane ever built and was airborne at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina for 12 seconds, traveling 120 feet in the air. There were many who thought Wilbur and his brother Orville were crazy before that day, but now they're national heroes. 
Same thing could kind of be said for Christopher Columbus. Remember, back in his day, people in Europe were so sure that he was insane and that his ships were bound to sail off the edge of the world at some point. And many of their coins in Europe at that time carried the Latin inscription, ne plus ultra, ne plus ultra, no more beyond. But after 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, many of those coins were actually changed. The, the, the minting process removed the, the negative part of that, and they just said plus ultra, more beyond, apparently. The American engineer, Robert Fulton, built the first steamboat, the first working steamboat in the early 1800s. And when he, when he had his first public demonstration of the steamboat, the crowds were cynical and they stood around the, the steamboat and they jeered, it will never start, never start, never start. And of course, when it fired up successfully and started to chug up the river, some others in the crowd started to chant, it will never stop, never stop, never stop. Just because the general consensus is that someone is acting in a manner that is incompatible with our rational sensibilities and that they must be crazy doesn't mean that they are, in fact, insane. That was certainly the case here. Paul was the sanest of the theologians. He was speaking the most true truth that ever was. He's pointing to a reality that's deeper and truer than what Festus and Agrippa could experience with their five senses alone. What did Paul say exactly that caused Festus to accuse him of being crazy? And we're going to see three reasons here why Festus thought Paul was crazy. And here's the thing. Romans in these days typically really weren't very spiritual, okay? Yes, they had the Roman pantheon of gods, but that was more cultural than spiritual worship, right? What they really worshipped, especially Romans in power, they worshipped imperial fortune, the, the success of the empire. They wanted to see Rome. They worshipped the idea of Roman prominence. And Festus, as a politician, worshipped power and was a practical materialist. Not that anybody in our culture today is a practical materialist, right? He was sensible. He was pragmatic. Being politically and spiritually correct were of the utmost importance to Festus. So we can easily identify these three reasons why Festus thought Paul was crazy when he gave his defense. First, when Paul spoke of his encounter with and his commission by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, it sounded ridiculous. An encounter with a risen dead man? No way. You didn't really see this. Look at verses 13 to 18 from chapter 26. At midday, O king, Paul said, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. It was the glory of God that surrounded the living Christ, shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, it was probably Aramaic, they think, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The goads were those sharp sticks that they would use to poke the oxen. And it was ridiculous for oxen to kick against them. It only made it hurt worse. That's how a lot of us act with God sometimes. And Paul said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in me. Of course, that sounded crazy. A light from heaven? A voice of Jesus, really. There's no way Festus believed in any of that stuff. The second thing we see that offended Festus's sensibilities and gave him reason to think Paul was crazy was how Paul radically obeyed that commission that was given to him, even at great personal cost. Look at verses 19 to 21. Therefore, O King Agrippa, and notice how Paul's really not even dealing with Festus. He's dealing with Agrippa, who's a Jewish leader, remember? I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Festus was like, why are you throwing your life away to you know, follow some kind of pipe dream? This Jesus thing, you're gonna get killed for this, Paul. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. How foolish. <coughs> Finally, the third and greatest offense to Festus's sensibility, the, the number one reason why he thought he was crazy, the, the point at which prompted the outburst was when Paul claimed that a dead man had come to life. Look at verses 22 and 23. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to the small and the great, to people who aren't very significant and to people who are very important in the world's eyes, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ, the Mashiach, the, the Messiah, the, the anointed one must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and the Gentiles. That was a step too far. Festus had heard enough. It was time to call Paul out. Paul, you're a nutcase. You're clearly brilliant. I know you've studied with Gamaliel and, and you've got a lot of learning, but it's driving you mad, man. You're insane. Some of the greatest saints in this world that this world has ever had the pleasure to have known have been accused of being crazy. You know, just like Rachel was talking about reading about missionaries, it's so important, I think, to read. We have biographies in our library if you want to go check one out about a missionary. I'm going to give you an example of three such men that the world thought was crazy for giving all they had for the sake of Christ. And first, you know, Paul, of course, 
he, he was called crazy for his faith, but for him, what he said in Philippians 1.21, remember? For Paul to live as Christ and to die was gain. If he risked his life, so what? What's the worst that could happen? He'd go to be with Jesus, right? It's, you know, Ron was saying that when his mom was having uh, breast cancer surgery, he was like, his you know, siblings like, why aren't you worried? He's like, what's the worst that could happen? Mom loves Jesus. She's been born again. If she dies, she goes to be with Jesus. It's gonna be okay either way. To live is Christ and die is gain. That sounds crazy to the world, but it's true. We are betting our lives on this. It's better be true. We what we have in Jesus is infinitely better than anything the world could offer. That's what these three missionary men believed that what they gained in Christ was far greater than anything they could gain in this world. That's why Paul wrote this in Philippians 3, uh, verse 7. Whatever gain I had, whatever worldly gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The world doesn't understand that. The world in, in 1913 didn't understand when a young guy named William Borden, the son of a wealthy Chicago family, they were silver miners, not the condensed milk people, different family. He was a graduate of Yale and Princeton and he left his palatial home just off of Lakeshore Drive in Chicago to go to Egypt as a missionary. He gave away his share of the family fortune, which in 1913 was worth $800,000. He gave it all away to missions societies. And within a year of arriving in Cairo, Borden contracted cerebral meningitis and died shortly thereafter. Following his death, his mom found in his Bible written the words, no reserve, and a date suggesting it had been written shortly after he had renounced his fortune in favor of missions, Christ's mission. Later, he wrote in his Bible, no retreat, after his father supposedly told him that he would never hold a position in the family business. And finally, shortly before he died in Egypt, he added to those words of no reserve and no retreat, no regrets. The world in 1885 didn't understand when seven brilliant, accomplished young men from Cambridge University decided to go to China as career lifelong missionaries. They were known as the Cambridge Seven, and the most famous of them was a guy named C.T. Studd. He was the most famous cricketer, the most famous athlete of any kind in England in that time. And polite society ridiculed them for what they called their enthusiasm. That was a nice British way of saying lunacy. Stud wrote the little poem years later, one life to live, twill soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. The world in 1981 didn't understand when Chet Bitterman was serving in Bogota, Colombia, with Wycliffe Bible Translators, an amazing organization. He was abducted by rebel fighters early one morning and 48 days later, his body was found in a bus shot in the chest. An entry in his journal said, I find this recurring thought 
that perhaps God will call me to be martyred in his service in Colombia. I am willing. That kind of talk seems absolutely insane to most people in our culture. And it sounded insane to Festus and Agrippa. So who's crazy? Is it Paul or is it the world? Is it Festus and Agrippa or is it Paul? Who's living in delusion? Who's living a life of actual insanity? You know, in 1982, the official Soviet Russian position on religion was this. Belief in God is a delusion. And anyone who disagreed with that, at that time, dissenters were frequently tortured or they were given psychedelic drugs as a way of treating their psychosis. But the patients weren't the ones who were crazy. We all tend to fall for the lies of the deceiver, right? Because we, we look around and we're bombarded with false messages all day long. And we see people who seem like they're sane, you know, successful people who are following the ways of this world. And we figure that these lies must be true. Do what feels good. Follow your own heart. Believe whatever truth you want and live it out. Take care of number one. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Buy this and you will be happy and fulfilled. Or lately, if you don't vote for this guy, our nation is doomed. We heard that on both sides, okay? <laughs> Just to be clear. <clears throat> now, we as Christians have a deeper truth. We have a reality that cuts through the lies of this world and exposes them for the insanity that they are. Scotty Smith, the founding pastor of Christ Community Church who preached here back in March, he talks a lot about gospel sanity. We need to be restored to gospel sanity. Smith wrote this recently. We live with gospel sanity, one, when who we are in Christ impacts us more powerfully than anything going on in the world or our lives. And two, when we see the occupied throne of heaven more clearly than all our fears, what ifs, and oh no's. Smith prescribes daily Bible reading as a way of orienting our souls back to gospel sanity. He says the Bible is such a gift to us, a treasure trove of hope an artesian spring of refreshment, a perpetual supply of redemptive surprises. And this is my favorite, an always working GPS for return trips to gospel sanity. Our world would be a saner and better place if we, like Paul, would operate out of gospel sanity rather than worldly insanity. Let's close by looking at Paul's response here in verse 25. When Festus says, you're crazy, Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. Reminds me of the reason for God by Tim Keller. Our faith is reasonable. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner he knows that Agrippa has seen what happened with Jesus. 
King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. King Agrippa had a reputation for being a, a pious Jew. He was, he was put into a corner here. Paul said, I know you believe these prophets who've been telling about a anointed one who would come to rescue God's people once and for all and pay the price that they could never pay no matter how many lambs they slaughtered and oxen. The Messiah would deliver them from their sins and death forever. But Agrippa has to play it cool in front of Festus. He's under the gun. So he says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? How tragic, how sad. But Paul is going after his soul. Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all these prominent people, great and small, who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. What would Paul say to us today if he was here? To the believers, I think he would say, Come to know true, uh, to unbelievers, he would say, come to know the real sanity of the gospel today. Leave behind the madness of the world. To fellow believers, if you're a Christian here today, I think he would say, so the world thinks you're nuts? Who cares? Keep serving Christ. Only what's done for him and his kingdom will last. If you want to leave a legacy on this earth, don't work more hours in the office, work more for Jesus Christ. That's a high calling indeed. We're told to do what Paul did in verse 18 of chapter 26, to open people's eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That is a high calling indeed, and one that if we engage in it, the world will think we are nuts. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you have given us that same calling that you gave to Paul to show the world true gospel sanity. God, we long to see people's eyes open to the truth. Forgive us when we fall into the temptation of the false claims of the enemy about what is good and right and true in this world. God, we pray that just as the old hymn says that the things of this world would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Lord, we want to see you as all great, all perfect, all powerful, as infinitely better and higher than anything this world has to offer. That if we have you, we are indeed wealthy above all earthly treasure. God, help us to, to believe that fully in gospel sanity. Help us to remember that you are on your throne. When we are anxious about the state of our nation, let us remember that kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there is something about the name of Jesus Christ that shall remain forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for being here today. If you have a decision that you need to make today, if you feel the Spirit compelling you to act, I pray that you'll right now respond in your heart. Pray right now and tell God, I want to live fully for you. Maybe you have some sin or anxiety that's been clinging at you and you know you need to lay it down. Today's the day to do that. If you've never become a Christian, if you've been following the madness of this world and you've decided enough, I want to be restored for the first time to gospel sanity, 
and you wanna become a Christian, I'd love to talk with you about that. I'm gonna be outside the South Foyer today. If you wanna talk to me, I'll be out there. If you wanna become part of our church family and you say, I am in on what God's doing at Woodmont, I wanna place my membership here and become part of this church family and not only be poured into, but pour out into others as well as part of a family of faith, then I invite you to come forward right now and just let me know. And we'd love to, to present you as a candidate for membership at Woodmont Baptist Church. Whatever it is that you need to do during this time, don't delay, don't resist the Spirit's call on your heart as we stand and sing our hymn of response.